This week we'll talk about A-B testing and experimentation. And we have special guest today, Jakob. Jakob has more than three years of experience of growing data and analytics teams. Now he's a head of analytics at Inkit. He's passionate about A-B tests, defining metrics and pizza duff. So welcome Jakob. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, especially curious about the last point, pizza duff, <laughs> but maybe this is something we'll talk uh, later. But before we go into our main topic of A-B tests, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Sure, yeah. So, yeah, I guess my journey started with like finishing my master's degree in, in econometrics. So with like a quantitative focus, I back then was super into economics and really wanted to actually be a practicing economist, which is surprisingly hard on the job market, but I kind of found like a job in economic consulting. Basically, I did like analysis of like mergers and cartel damages and stuff like that. So you can actually apply and run econometric models, like regression models and stuff like that. But the overall work environment wasn't super inspiring. So what I took away from that was basically, I like working with data, but not in that industry. <laughs> so yeah, there was a through a friend, I learned about an opening at King as like the producer of Candy Crush and these types of mobile games. So they have tons of data. Bubble Witch, right? Yeah, that was basically my start in a like proper data science job. So that's the first time when I actually started working with SQL, with properly with R, and later also Python. Really got to enjoy the topic of A-B testing. And then later on, I moved to Bubble which is a language learning company. And yeah, there I pretty much did a similar job, but I would say at a company that had less data tools built out, which is also what was interesting to me. I really wanted to kind of understand how to build up a data organization, how to like create the tools and kind of pave the way. And yeah, got promoted there into like a team lead position as team lead of product analytics. And later on, my team also took kind of the mission of building an experimentation platform, also much more of a focus on A-B testing. And then afterwards, I yeah, had the opportunity to join Inkit, which is where I am now. Smaller company than Bubble. We basically do online publishing, or to put it specific, we kind of are a platform where users can publish their books. We analyze reading behaviors, and kind of have an algorithm that predicts like how well these books will perform. If they perform well enough, we put them under a contract and move them to an app where um, users actually pay for this. And we do tons of story-specific testing as well, which is also one of the big reasons why I joined. Yeah, and small plug, we have positions open. So <laughs> if you're interested, you're happy to chat about it. Is it for novels? Yeah, for novels. Not for technical books? No. <laughs> Maybe that's something for the future would be interesting, but so far it's strictly fiction. So you get a manuscript, you run it through a model, and then if the model says it's going to be a bestseller, you sign up a contract? Or? Basically, yeah, but it is based on how users read it. Uh -huh. So we have like the free reading platform, and then we have a paid reading platform. And uh, on the paid one are basically the successful ones from the free one. Uh -huh. Quite interesting. So this uh, is more like for indie who want to, to publish independently, right? Not go yeah. to, I don't know, big publishers. I don't actually know any names. 
Exactly. I mean, in some sense, we are then the publisher. So Inkit is kind of like a publishing house. But in the past, we sold books on Amazon, but we've pretty much stopped doing that. And the focus is really on this app um, through which you can read. Yeah. I'm also curious about your econometrics background. So you said uh, you first started with that. And I remember taking courses about econometrics. And what surprised me is how rigorous it is compared to machine learning. So in machine learning, the idea is you just throw in data, then you do cross-validation, and if it works on cross-validation, you're fine, right? But in econometrics, you need to do a lot of how this, like analysis, like you need to find if there are correlated variables and all these things, you need to be careful with them, remove them. So is it the correct observation? Yeah, I think because the aim of econometrics is more like to learn about relationships in the data and less about predicting, right? So mm -hmm. I think the whole science behind it was is based on the idea that economists wanted to understand the, the world and see if their models actually fit it. So they collected the data and they started kind of using these regression techniques to understand causality, like, is this doing that? And of course, causality is very complicated when you work with observational data. And that's also why I think, yeah, this whole field of econometrics is very specific about regression techniques and stuff like that. <laughs> And yeah, <laughs> how the errors are distributed and where you need to be careful. So it's, I think it's much more about hypothesis testing to some extent. Yeah, I remember there are a lot of tests like, okay, is this normally distributed? And then you run a test and then test says, okay, it's not, or the p-value of this is this much. Yeah. And then I guess this is when you really got into statistical tests, right? Yeah. So maybe can you tell us what actually an A-B test is? So why should we care about this test if we are not <laughs> somebody who is into econometrics, but uh, let's say data scientists? Yeah, I mean, an A-B test, I think of it as like what everybody kind of knows from at least popular science. And I guess particularly from the corona pandemic are clinical trials. So how we actually find out whether a vaccine works or not. And these clinical trials usually have split into two groups. You have a treatment group that actually gets the proper vaccine, and then you have a control group that doesn't get the proper vaccine. Maybe they get a placebo or something like that. And yeah, the participants are kind of like randomly split into these two groups, and then you kind of track their, their whatever outcome you're interested in over time. And an A-B test is very similar to that. Well, I don't know where A-B testing strictly starts, but I would say like in the online world, that's where the whole idea came up with, or when it started being called an A-B test. It is really about like taking some unit of randomization that may be a user, that may be a specific session, for example, and basically testing specific experiences on users. So the classic example is like a button color. I don't think anybody really does that because... <laughs> Oftentimes, at least I think at the companies where I worked, we had like bigger things that we wanted to improve upon. But the idea is really some users will get a control version of something, basically your it's website old version, used right? to be. Yeah. And then another group of users get something in addition to it. For example, a new feature, a redesign or something like that. We track their behavior over time. We measure it. And then we basically compare which of these two groups performs better. Usually that's done with some statistical analysis to control the noise of the experiment and conclude it based on that. 
So that's the overall idea of an A-B test. In some way, fairly old idea, but yeah, I think the cool thing about it in the online world is like you get results so much faster when you talk to people that actually work on clinical trials and things like that. They have to run studies for years. And <laughs> if we have enough users on a certain website or a certain product, we can do it in weeks or even days. But I guess here, so in clinical trials, the example with vaccine, so there are two groups. One gets the proper vaccine, the other gets uh, not a vaccine. Yeah. And then there is some, some metric that you measure, right? So after half a year, how many of them got uh, a disease, right? This is the metric you measure. And you expect that in the treatment group, this percentage will be lower, right, than in the control group. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the idea behind why we do A-B testing in the first place is really to establish like this causal link of like the change and the impact, which is otherwise, as I mentioned before, like econometrics is so sophisticated because economists have to work with observational data. You can't do experiments on entire countries or something like that. That gets very hard and is unethical, of course. But in, yeah, in the online world, it's much easier to do, right? And at the same time, we have so many external factors that may otherwise influence our metrics that it oftentimes gets really hard to establish whether something had an impact, unless it's really big, that we need these types of experiments to really make sure what we're actually doing. This is what you mentioned. You said control the noise, right? So noise is all the factors that we don't have control of. Yeah. Right? And we want to make sure that whatever we're observing and not affected by that. Because I guess, uh, let's say, with the example of the color of a button, so let's say you just think, okay, maybe green button will convert better than blue button. So you change this button, right? You deploy this change, and then you see on the next day, more people bought, and you think, okay, this probably is good. But maybe something happened, right? Yeah. Maybe there was a promotion that your marketing team ran, and you didn't know about this, right? And that's why more people clicked on this button. Exactly. And especially like, I think you reach that point quickly when, when you're just in a company where it's very hard to keep track of what everybody's doing. And there's so many different factors that just gets very hard. I think that's, yeah, these external influences are a big challenge. The other source of noise is just like that every user is going to be a bit different. Even if you look, I don't know, like at the exact same demographic and then the exact same different situation, they may just behave differently. So on the one hand, these external factors, those like with this experiment set up, we can control for all of them, hopefully, if we design it properly. And then we just deal with this individual noise. And for that, we can use statistics to kind of say, okay, this is actually like a measurable effect or there's just chance that we see. Can you give us an example, maybe from something you did recently, like of an A-B test that you run? Maybe something simple. Well, something that we did on Inkit and which was a lot of basically introduced or was a big project, let's say like that, is so on our commercial app called Galatea, basically to be able to read the next chapter of a book, you either, either have to wait for six hours or you basically purchase points. That was the old, old kind of like, uh, so points are like a in-game currency, so to say, and you can purchase point packages in our store. But we then were thinking about introducing a subscription model, which basically says, if you have the subscription, you can go on reading mm -hmm. as much as you want. Something that 
Bubble Witch and other games from King do quite often, right? Exactly. That's a really great example of like, this can be a huge like positive impact for the business, but at the same time, it has certain risks, right? Mm -hmm. So what if users are scared of the subscription, don't want to subscribe because it's much more money up front than what they would do with these points? So like this revenue per install, for example, based on this is something that is quite hard to foresee in which direction that goes. And then again, we have so many ways how to design a subscription model, right? We can do 12 months subscriptions. We can do one month subscription. We can change the prices of the points packages in comparison to it. So that there are so many degrees of freedom, which of course adds opportunity. If you get, get it wrong the first place, there's things to change. But it also means like if you're not aware of whether this was a success or failure, you can also cause a lot of harm <laughs> to your business. And yeah, whoever works with revenue data in a like freemium environment probably knows that this is one of like these metrics that fluctuates the most on a user level. So it's really hard to measure. And therefore, if you just roll something out, you can't hope that from one day to another, it just like goes up and stays up or it goes down and stays down. Like these level changes are going to be unlikely. So you really need an experiment to actually compare the differences. Yeah, so in this case, the experiment, uh, you had two models, the old model without, was it with points or without, I don't remember. With points, yeah. So points only, and then the test was actually points and subscription at the uh -huh. same time. And I guess uh, here the metric, uh, what you actually, the outcome you wanted to measure is uh, some sort of revenue-based metric, right? Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. And then you would look at uh, how much revenue, I don't know, per user, each group would uh, generate, right? And then based on that, you decide whether you should stick with the old version or go with the new one, right? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And why can't we just trust our gut feeling? So in this case, let's say uh, you have this experience from King and you know that for users, they really like this, you know, gamification. And mm -hmm. then they would also, some of them would pay to actually to be able to go to the next level of Bubble Witch or some other game. So can't you just trust your gut feeling and say, okay, trust me, it will work. Let's go ahead and deploy it. Yeah, I mean, gut feelings are great, generally just to come up with ideas. And I think there, there are probably some decisions where I would say maybe it's too hard to test, maybe it's too much effort to test or something like that. And then expert opinion is, is a good way to go. But in any case, I think the, the challenge with expert opinion is like you can devise saying, you know, users like a subscription or user like a certain type of feature. But then I think how you then implement this general idea of a feature can still like go a myriad of different ways. And some implementations may work perfectly. And then you can trust your gut feeling or your expert vision. But some may also be just not be very user friendly or something like that. And those you probably want to understand or catch early. So like this de-risking of a feature, I think is a huge aspect of why, why we should be doing this. I think the other aspect is if you're working with a product team that is like continuously iterating on a certain product component or something like that, building new features and iterating, then it's also good for them to have feedback, like specific feedback as like this change that we did gave 10% more revenue or something like that. 
or this change only gave like five percent more revenue and when we tried this we actually failed and uh, revenue actually reduced so to have these learnings that's actually what builds up expert knowledge <laughs> it's basically about the organizational kind of like learning as well like the more you test and the more like you test iterations on a on a similar field the more you kind of understand how users function what makes them tick and at the same time how you can transfer that knowledge maybe later on so for sure like with most tests if you design them in a good way you can probably abstract some kind of learnings that you could apply somewhere else like the example for when i worked at king was obviously like king has a whole portfolio of games they had some huge games like candy crush and then they had some small games and the small games it's harder to break something massively so they oftentimes did like little experiments or like more risky stuff on the smaller games and when they found that worked out well then they just like could copy that over to all the games so in that way <laughs> that's a really great example how you can kind of multiply and transfer your learnings quite quickly with other products it may not always work that directly but indirectly i think you can still get to learn a lot about like your impact as a team and send the users that you're serving mm -hmm. so if uh, to summarize why we should go with a b test not gut feeling the first thing is gut feelings are good just to give you some initial idea but there are thousands of ways of implementing this idea which one works best you don't know the only way yeah. to find out is iterate and see how users react this way you learn from users you can attribute to see like this feature brought x amount of uplift uh, to our metric we care about for example revenue and then we know okay this is what users really like right and yeah. then you can maybe run your features by the impact so you have this learning was there something else no i think that's a good summary maybe one more aspect is like imagine from one day to another your revenue like cuts in half huge crisis in the company like what happened right if you like the previous couple of days like just rolled out new features without a b testing like you wouldn't know is it because of them like did they ruin it you roll those releases back and hope for the best and maybe that fixed it or not but yeah with an a b test you could just like open the data and have a quick peek and say okay both groups go down it's something else right so that also helps just another aspect yeah, and I realized that you mentioned this de-risking uh, thing. So yeah. let's say if you have a big game like Candy Crush, you want to be very careful with the changes you introduce because they will affect a lot of users. And then yeah. it brings, I don't know, a huge pie of the revenue, right? So you want to be super careful there. And you want to test if every change you make actually brings this uplift. Yep, yep exactly. Yeah. So now we know that A-B tests are good we need to experiment and how do we start with this so let's say you join a company a startup so uh, this startup they do not experiment yet they already have data a data engineering team or maybe a data engineer single person who put together some infrastructure so the company is already tracking some events these events hopefully end up in a data warehouse where we can i don't know bigquery or Athena or some other tool now Snowflake, I think, is popular these days. So we have this infra, and you join this company as a product analyst, right? And 
How do you go about setting A-B tests there, setting up this experimentation culture in this company? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never been at that stage where I had to set everything up from scratch. So I would probably think about first is kind of have like two roads to take that in some sense, like have major implications down the line. And the, the, on the one hand, so there are kind of like third-party tools that you can purchase that give you kind of like the all-in-one kind of packaging of like doing A-B testing, doing the analysis and so on, like stuff like Optimizely, Google Optimize, Firebase. And they all have like varying amounts of features, probably Optimizely is the most complete that serves you like a nice analysis dashboard at the end. Um, so I have never actually worked at a company where we use these third-party tools. At King, Bubble, and, and now also at Inkit, we kind of have our in-house tools, which is, I would say, it's probably much more effort to actually do it. But at the same time, you have like full transparency. I, I can't really give like a, a fair advice as like which road to take when you're at the very beginning. But I would say like, it depends a bit Probably at the beginning, the experiment setups are going to be very specific and probably a bit basic. And maybe then it's fine to use an external tool that just like splits the traffic split quickly and gives you some feedback in terms of, I don't know, events. And you can choose either to manually do the analysis or look at their dashboard or something like that, that they serve you. The nice thing about that is like you as the first product analyst going to be probably the poor person having to do all the work if if there's a tool that basically uh, does something or like that automatically maybe it's good that's i think one way to go with at the beginning the other way would be to really work with engineers and build your own traffic splitter so something in the back end that basically can receive an api call and then say this user b or this user a or something like that and then whatever product we're working with, let's assume it's an app or something like that. The app can then receive that and based on that, show a specific experience. And yeah, with the, the traffic splitter, I mean, it doesn't do something very difficult, right? You just have to be careful that it actually randomizes whatever it's doing and it randomizes on the right level. So what's the unit of randomization? Is it a user ID? Is it a session ID? like a cookie or something like that. And my next suggestion would be build as much tracking around this process as possible. So not only tracking, well, here's the assignment, this user is A or this user is B, but you actually want to understand, does the app always call the traffic splitter at the right time? Does the traffic splitter always give a sensible result? Is that received properly? And these sorts of things, because they are the first complications can start. What if the internet connection is bad? What will the app do then, right? Will it just say, well, don't have a call, so I'm just going to say that user is in group A. <laughs> and that's already the first point where that's not how it should work, because then every offline user is a control user all of a sudden, and you're going to get very biased results, like these sorts of things. So kind of from scratch, I think you need to build out a system that you can like fully monitor and build trust in. Because if you don't trust that system, then you can forget about your A-B tests. A good way to understand what's happening there is to do an AA test. So really let the traffic splitter split, but the app will just show each group the exact same thing. You just track 
you have two groups, they see the same thing. So you should ideally be able to measure the same thing. There's only like the differences due to, due to chance, due to users being individuals. But for example, if you 50-50 split between test and control, then in an AA test, you can at first understand, well, are the assignments actually 50-50 or is it 60-40, which is a warning sign that something's going wrong? Or are the experiment results, I don't know, we're tracking some conversion rates and in group A, it's 40% and in group B, it's 60%. Then also probably something is going on with the randomization. Yeah. So that's kind of like making the tool trustworthy. And I think it's also worth doing that with external tools because at Bubble, we had the experience that we couldn't really trust them. And that was, was actually was going on. Like they gave us like these not really clean tests. Like we had wanted 50-50 splits and we got 55-45 and mm. we didn't know what was going on. So I think that's kind of like the trust building. Yeah, and then I think the next step is really work with a team that does the first test and properly design it. And designing the experiment means like properly planning out hey, which groups do we have? Which kind of metrics do we want to make a decision based on? There should be one metric. There shouldn't be five or something like that because results won't be very clear otherwise. And ideally, there should be some idea of expected impact. You probably want to understand the metrics before you actually run the test. So understand like, are they super noisy? Are they fairly stable? These sorts of things to kind of understand and and plan the duration. You can apply statistics for that, but like at the basic level, at least understand, okay, revenue per install is probably super noisy. Whereas, I don't know, a click-through rate is maybe something that's fairly stable. And my recommendation with the first A-B test is just like, keep it as simple as possible. Don't plan more than two groups. Don't do the fancy metrics where you don't even know what to like statistical test to apply later or something like that. Don't put it in like a very strange logical position that makes it hard to track it or that that makes it challenging for the product to kind of like handle the, the request to the server to receive the assignment and these sorts of things. So it should be something that you can understand the technical environment and it's not going to give you too many headaches. And then, yeah, in the end, it's making sure that, that you catch the data in the right way um, and do the analysis. And yeah. <laughs> so to summarize, uh, so there are two routes, third-party tools, and then building this in-house. So you need to select the route you want to take. Then you need to get a good uh, first use case, right? It should be something simple. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, you need to understand the metrics, and maybe this is something we can talk a bit more. But the first thing, as you mentioned, is we need to have trust in what we are doing. And the first thing we can do is running AA test. Yeah. So in AA test, it should be the split at the end should be 50-50, the results uh, in each group should be similar. And then once we have that, once we have trust in the tool, then we work closer with the team and then design this experiment, right? Yeah. And then you mentioned a few things. So we need to understand the metric. We need to uh, understand if they are noisy or stable, what is the expected impact? And I have a few questions about this. So first of all, what is a noisy metric? What, what does it mean for a metric to be noisy? Well, I think the simplest way to look at noise 
as just to track a metric over time. Let's look, I don't know, look at a conversion rate daily or revenue daily or something like that. If it fluctuates a lot, like a stock price or something like that, that means it's <laughs> it's probably very noisy. Like think about if you had two of these lines that are like going like this and you you need to be able to distinguish and say just from looking at it, is it easy to say whether these lines are, one line is like clearly outperforming the other line or not? That's in the end, like what's going to be spit out of the experiment and you have to make sense of. So if, if it's two lines and they just like go like this, yeah, very easy to say, right? But if it's, if they go like this, then it's going to be much harder to say. And that's kind of like how I would think about noise in an intuitive sense. Of course, you could say standard deviation very high or something like that and throw some statistics at it. But I think that's <laughs> the intuitive way of looking at it. Like how much variation do I see when I look at a time series? And then stable metric is the opposite of a noisy metric, right? So stable means that it doesn't oscillate too much, right? It's yeah. not uh, jumping back and forth. So, and then when you plot, I don't know, a metric for group A and group B, you can clearly see that uh, this blue line is better than this green line, right? So yeah. you can make a decision, okay, this group is better, but if they're constantly overlapping, then it's uh, very difficult, right? Yeah. Another aspect of this that is relevant for a lot of metrics and that I think in the end, like you have to really analyze for each product is are there any like specific seasonalities or patterns in the data? So for example, on entertainment products, you're probably going to have like higher usage on, on the weekends than the weekdays or these sorts of things. So that means, for example, that you probably shouldn't run an experiment that only runs on the weekend days and then it's done. You probably want like a full weekly cycle to have unbiased results. What could be such metrics like how much time people spend in games? So probably maybe they spend more time, I don't know, when people spend yeah. more time. Maybe on the weekend, right? They spend more time on the phone because on the working week they have, I don't know, go to school or work or do things. Yeah, something like that. Um, think about game rounds per user will probably be higher on the weekend. Time, right? Retention rates, also a very common metric, will probably also be higher on the weekend. Yeah, so each of these kind of have like these weekly cycles. But there may also be products like thinking about tax fix, like this company where you can with per app submit your taxes in Germany. Well, they're gonna have like their big boom beginning of the year or like first half of the year. And then in December, probably there's not that much going on, right? So there, there are these like business cycles, even on a, on a larger scale that you kind of have to anticipate. Of course, like we're not gonna run an entire year experiment to control for that, but I think you at least have to be aware because that's also gonna determine how many users will actually go into the, experiments like how much traffic it actually gets mm -hmm. and yeah you mentioned this like duration so well for metrics that have these oscillations that uh, there are more users on the weekend so there we need to plan to at least cover the entire week right yeah what do we need to think about when we are talking about duration when we plan for how long we want to run the experiment yeah so that's actually where we could imply in in like typical frequentist statistics, there's something called power analysis. And the idea is basically you plug in 
all the requirements that you have for your experiment and some like proper statistical properties of the metric that you're looking at. And based on that, it will spit out like how many observations do you need to make a decision. So the idea is basically we want to make sure that we have enough observations, like reasonably well detect, for example, a 5% improvement on some metric or something like that. And then based on that, you can basically take this 5% improvement of the metric and the metric itself, its standard deviation and mean. And that then really depends on how is the metric statistically distributed. But if it's, for example, a conversion rate, it's fairly straightforward to basically like use this idea of a z-test. And for that, there's a, there's a simple formula for the power analysis. And we basically will spit you out, okay, you need say 2000 observations and then based on that result you can actually look at your daily traffic like how many users do i get on that page for example where the a b test triggers every day and just estimate like how long do i need to run this roughly and that's then something that on the one hand you can use to determine well at this stage now i can do my analysis but also talk to stakeholders and say, okay, we need to get this running roughly like three weeks or something like that. Oftentimes, once you have like an A-B test running as an analyst, one day later, you're going to get some questions about from the product manager and it's basically, how is it doing? How is it doing? And <laughs> it's mm -hmm. dangerous to give into these things. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that uh, there is a simple formula and I saw these calculators so you don't even need to look at the formula you just go uh, there is a, like on online calculator you go you put some numbers there and then it says okay you need that many samples and i am wondering how much statistics do we actually need to know as data scientists or as, as product analysts to be able to run a tests if we have these simple formulas if we have these online calculators do we even need to bother with uh, you know knowing the internal so we just can use these calculators and and not worry about this yeah i think you know to be honest i would say in the most basic format like i said that you could also just look at time series and if they look very different probably don't even need statistics for it like there i think for very obvious uplift between uh, test and control, probably you won't need statistics. I think the statistics will just tell you when you can't tell with your own eyes any longer what's right and what's wrong. So I think you don't necessarily need somebody who's like super advanced at statistics. If you did like a university course or something like that and probably refresh your knowledge on how do hypothesis tests work, I don't think it's super necessary to be able to derive formulas or something like that, but what are like type one and type two errors? How do I control for them? And that's basically like, you know, setting the confidence level and understanding what the confidence level means, understanding how to interpret p-values and these sorts of things. And I think that's the most important thing. The next part, I think if you're testing only like these rates that just are always between zero and one, like conversion rates, retention rates. I think that's enough. But the challenge is when you go into like metrics that, yeah, get a bit more difficult actually to describe statistically. So revenue per install, for example, I think is a great example of 
you know, there's also the t-test. Half the world probably applies the t-test to everything. It may also be a bit, at times, very misleading. And I think, especially with this data, where for 90% of users, the outcome is zero. And then for one user, it's like 59 or something like that. Like you see these very extreme values, then that's actually where you have to be really careful in your choice of statistical tests. And then it, I think it really helps having a bit like more in-depth knowledge of statistics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it really depends like how advanced it gets. If, if you have very complicated metrics, it's definitely worth to have somebody that knows a bit more about it, knows how to kind of like choose an appropriate distribution and these sorts of things. Because yeah, I think oftentimes, you know, Nothing like super bad will happen necessarily if you don't choose the perfect tests, but you may have to wait way longer or something like that. We'll need way more data than necessary. For example, if like you can't apply a t-test, so you're doing a non-parametric test or something like that, that just in terms of like what kind of uplift or increase in the mean it can detect, it'll be less efficient. It'll take so much more observations, for example. How can we pick this up? Like, let's say, so for those who have no idea what, uh, well, maybe t-test is uh, quite a widespread thing, but for those who don't know what a t-test is, what a m- this non-parametric test, but maybe we did some machine learning or I don't know, some analytics in the past. So what could be a good resource to pick this up? How much math do we need for that? Actually, not necessarily a lot of math. I would say, like, if you are familiar with Python or with R, there are going to be tons of packages where you can apply these sorts of tests. And I think the more interesting part is to actually look at histograms, see how they fit distributions and these sorts of things. So that's kind of where the statistical modeling comes in. Like, does my data or does the mean of my data look like uh, normally distributed? If yes, then life is very easy usually if it looks similar to to normally distributed but it has very fat tails so you have like the much higher chance of having seeing extreme values then it gets more difficult and i think it's mostly about like visualizing and making sure that you understand the distribution of your data and that you maybe know some like basic distributions that you can throw on it and compare it but i don't think you need to be super into math unless you're doing like proper research on statistics do you know any good crash course on maybe test that does not involve a lot of math but it's more like practical if your data looks like mm-hmm. this use this test if your data looks like that use the other test honestly i don't know <laughs> i'm pretty sure there are tons of like i would say there's probably more that you can find on yeah online than in real books i've rarely found like a good book on a b testing that's is not just like a statistics course mm-hmm. or I don't know how to apply statistics in Python or R. There's one book I can really recommend, but it's more of a practical guide and it's, it touches upon almost everything except for statistics, which is, I think, oftentimes like the harder part to obtain. But I would, yeah, I would say in the end, like my advice is also when starting to A B test, probably 
it's only 10% of the effort, like thinking about how the things are statistically distributed. There's surprisingly so many other things that, that are going on and can go wrong. Designing this, uh, right? Thinking of metrics and yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have quite a few questions, and we already talked about. Oh, you mentioned the, the frequentist approach. So the the question is related to that. Can you please explain, like M five, what the p value is? Or maybe uh, like five is uh, a bit tough. Maybe like M ten. Yeah. I'm just going to try to explain it in simple words, and then I'm not sure if that, if it's appropriate for 10-year-olds. But basically, it gives you an idea how likely is it that you see the results that you see from your test. Let's say, I don't know, test group has a 5% better performance than control. How likely is it that you would see such a result in an AA test, basically? So there, you don't have a treatment, it's the same thing, and you test the exact same thing in both groups, but from the same user population, and you would still get a 5% uplift. So the p-value is kind of like an indication of what are the chances that this is like out of the ordinary, that, that this is not by chance. So the lower it is, the more likely it is that there's something else going on than just like the typical noise that you see. Yeah, this is such a good explanation because usually like the p-value is the probability of rejecting the null hypothesis under and then like when I read this my mind just blows and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is very always very difficult to understand and then this is like probability of rejecting and then yeah but the way you put it is like you compare it with AA test right and what's the probability you would see it under AA test that makes a lot of sense and this is a lot easier to uh, understand and to explain probably to people who do not have math background who haven't studied statistics because if you start telling them about null hypothesis their mind will go blank right yeah yeah exactly i think it's uh <laughs> that's the fun thing like you need to strike a balance like as a data scientist people are not going to trust you if or like they're just going to be impressed like they're also like these typical people of like, oh, feel you're the smartest guy in the room. Whatever you tell is probably like a super smart idea. But if you can put it in simple terms, they'll understand it and they'll probably believe in the results more than if you keep it very abstract. So it's actually like when I interview people for these types of analyst position, I just ask them always to explain these, <laughs> these sorts of terms in like a way that a product manager with zero statistics background could kind of relate to. And of course, it's always going to be a bit simplified or simplistic and a statistician would, would get nervous or something like that, but at least that it's not misleading. Do you remember any good answers that you got Well, in addition to this A test? I think it's always kind of like a similar answer. So far, I've actually not had so many well, maybe I'm also biased myself just because that, that is my answer to it. But yeah, I like off the bat, you can tell. What do you think about this other way of doing tests? The other way is uh, so we have the frequentist approach to testing and then we have the Bayesian approach to testing, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no notion of p-value in Bayesian tests, right? So what do you think about this? Yeah. So oftentimes I think like people take very strong sides and Bayesian is, I think, a bit more popular because it sounds much more exciting and it's a bit more like the hype these days. I think both approaches work 
and both have like some some pros and cons. I think like the frequentist approach is just it's well adapted, you know. As we mentioned, like we have like these online calculators, we have methods or like packages implemented in almost all like data programming languages that let you analyze data in a very convenient way with like frequentist statistics. Almost all people that had some statistics course will have like been exposed to like this basic idea of hypothesis testing. They have heard about confidence intervals, about p-values and these sorts of things. So like the the terms that you work with are like well established. It's they also usually like easy to calculate. So computationally it's cheap. You can think about automating A B testing in a large company where you run like hundreds of tests and you want to update the results every day, then it's nothing to worry about basically. But yeah, I think the challenge is, as you said, like the formal definition of what is a confidence interval and what does it mean or a p-value is fairly abstract, right? It's not something that how we relate to things like in, in our daily lives. Yeah, and yeah, I think the other drawback is really that you each test is based on very specific assumptions and you oftentimes or fairly quickly may run into a situation where you just don't know what is a good test to fit your data and then yeah, you can apply these non-parametric tests, as I said, but they may not be super efficient. I think the Bayesian approach, on the other hand, the outputs that you get from it, you can construct very intuitive things. Like a credible interval is actually something much more intuitive than a confidence interval, although they look the same. What is a credible interval? It just literally tells you there's a 95% chance that your mean is within these boundaries. Whereas the confidence interval says basically, if you repeat this experiment 100 times, then 95 out of these times, you get a confidence interval that may not look like this, but the true mean is in there. <laughs> That's super confusing. Yeah. So the, the credible interval is like super easy to work with, but you can calculate win and loss probabilities, right? So you can say that this test or the test version of my A-B test has like a 60% chance of winning. And then with that, it's super easy to, to talk to product managers and discuss with them, hey, we're going to roll this out if we see like an 80% winning probability, right? So that's like a huge, mm -hmm. I think, pro of, of the Bayesian approach. It's mm -hmm. like the outputs that you get are very intuitive. I think the another factor is there's a lot of like very explicit modeling in it, but you need to understand a bit more about the statistics behind it. So you can choose priors. You have to think about what priors to pick from which distribution they come from. Then you have to model like the actual data distribution. Based on that, you're going to get some posterior. So there's like a lot of modeling choices that you can do. And based on that, you can have like really great result quality, maybe in like with less observations than actually frequentist approach. But you can also, yeah, I think do things <laughs> wrong very easily if you, if you just like throw some data into some random model and then it computes something. And the other thing is, again, you're very quickly going to end up in a, in a world where there's no analytical solution for the approach that you take. And then you have to do simulations like this MCMC modeling 
which can get computationally expensive. So at Inkit, for example, we run currently like hundreds of story tests. Now imagine for every test you have to do like simulations, I don't know, 5,000 like draws from or something like that to just for uh, one group of one test. You need a powerful (laughs) computational resource for that, for sure. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with it, for sure. Like if you want to automate something like that, then it's harder to scale. And the other aspect that is oftentimes forgotten is like you can still run into the same errors that you do with like frequency statistics. So type one and type two errors are still something that you need to deal with. There's only not such a clear framework for it. So you can still make wrong decisions or misleading decisions and you can still not detect effects. And I don't know, there may be ways of actually controlling that as well, like in Bayesian statistics, but at least I think it's not something that is like the knowledge is not super available about it at least. Yeah. So I think it's it's much more an open field. Like with frequentists, there's tons of literature about problems and corner cases. And I think with Bayesian approaches, you quickly reach the end and then you have to be really confident in what you're doing yourself. Uh, I see that we are almost running out of time, but there is one question that you perhaps can answer pretty quickly. So the question is about A, B, C, D tests. So what is this A slash B slash C slash D test with respect to A, B test? And when do we need this complex test? So when do we need it? I think if you talk to to product teams that quickly want to iterate on things, they want to do those all the time. But the idea is basically, instead of having one test group, you now have three test groups. And you can, you know, going back to this stupid button color example, you don't only test like green versus red, but you also have blue and here yellow now on the side. And you just run it all at the same time and you want to find out which one is the best. Now you can do that. There's nothing that's methodologically is problematic about it. But when you think about duration, Splitting a population into two parts and reaching the required sample size for it is going to be faster than doing it if you have like a 25% in each group. So the test will run longer to detect the same effect. That's one of one problem, oftentimes because we all want to get things over with quickly. And the other pitfall that can be is just Going back to this frequentist approach, like basically you always usually set like this 5% confidence level. And that really tells you, like, I want to limit the chance of type one errors to 5%. So basically seeing a test say this has an impact, even though in in reality it doesn't have an impact, that chance is, is fairly small. Now, when you have to do pairwise comparisons in ABCD, tests, then you're not only doing one test decision, you're doing A versus B, you're doing A versus C, A versus D, B versus, and so on, right? So all of a sudden, you have a much higher chance that one of those is wrong. And maybe that's fine. Maybe you also want to limit and just want to say, I want to compare A versus B. I just want to compare A versus C and A versus D. And I don't want to compare the three groups in between each other. But in reality, of course you will you want to do that right so then you kind of have to think about how to make sure that with that 
you know, at some point you're not going to end up deciding on something that may just by chance have an effect. I mean, the simplest example of that is like, let's imagine we have 20 groups and then this 5% chance will, if you do 20 tests, then one of them will have an impact, 20 AA tests <laughs> by chance. So yeah, these sorts of problems can become very prevalent with like multiple test groups. Okay, thanks. So I actually wanted to ask you about Pizzadoff as well, which we didn't have a chance to talk. So maybe do you have any resource that you can recommend us to learn more about this topic and A-B tests? Maybe how can we test the best pizza stuff with A-B tests? <laughs> I have never tested. So that's one of the things where I don't A-B test. Maybe I should yeah, do it. Kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think how to get good at Pizzadoff is just like practice a lot invite people over so that you can produce a lot of pizza dough <laughs> and not just like for one or two pizzas and then keep on doing it but yeah i have like this in the in the summer i got this portable pizza oven which is a lot of fun uh, so it heats up high enough that i can do like this neapolitan style pizzas in it and yeah i'm getting very very nerdy about dough <laughs> Okay, yeah. So you mentioned that you are actually hiring for product analysts, right? So if you have any job descriptions linked to your job portals, please send. And I will include this in the description. And who, like for those who are interested, you will find the link in the description. And I guess you can just look it up in Git Jobs, right? And in your favorite yeah. search engine, and you will find that. And if somebody has a question to you, how can they find you? LinkedIn or some other? Yeah, LinkedIn is probably easiest. I'm there under my full name. So Jakob Graf, G-R-A-F-F. Should be easy enough to find. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your experience with us. Thanks everyone for joining us today as well, for asking questions. And I wish everyone a great weekend. Thanks. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye-bye.